you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. Did the Fed just give the all clear for stocks? Markets closing near the highs of the day after the central bank paused for the second meeting in a row, for which Jerome Powell keeping the possibility of another hike on the table. Are investors getting too far ahead of themselves? Plus, by China, it's been a rough ride for stocks in Shanghai this year, and plenty of companies are raising the red flags over growth in that region. So what better time to get into those markets? Someone on this desk is getting overweight these names. We'll find out why. And a big after-hours moves in SolarEdge, Zillow, Roku, and more. We're digging in on all the earnings headlines after hours, bringing you all those trades. I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Steve Grasso, and Michael Kantopoulos, Director of Fixed Income at Richard Bernstein Advisors. But first, the post-Fed market rally. The central bank keeping rates unchanged for the second time in a row and upgrading its assessment of economic growth. Stocks closing near their highs of the day. The biggest winner, the tech-heavy Nasdaq, up almost 2 percent. The Dow jumping 221 points. The S&P 500 also gaining. For all the details from today's decision, let's bring in CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Steve, it's funny because I think most people walked away from the press conference believing that the Fed still left the door open to another hike, and yet the markets are running away as if that's not a possibility at all. Yeah, I'm going to walk through, Melissa, and you can tell me if you think mm-hmm. I'm crazy at the end of this, why there was something of a dovish tilt to this thing. Let, let me go through this. They left rates unchanged for the second meeting in a row. That range of five and a quarter, five and a half, that was as expected. But Fed Chair Jay Powell, I think he provided a modestly dovish outlook that suggested at least that that additional rate hike may not occur. And I say may not advisedly. While he affirmed that the takeaway from the statement is that, yes, policymakers are leaning towards that hike, as Melissa just said, that is, by the way, in most committees uh, members' forecasts, Powell said it was unclear if that hike would occur. That's because risks between doing too much and doing too little were now becoming more balanced. It's fair to say that's the question we're asking is, should we hike more? It's not, it's not you know, and that, that, that is the question. And you're right that it, in September we wrote down one additional rate hike. But, you know, we will write down another forecast, as you know, in December. Powell said the rise in yields was among the reasons that the Fed could hold at least at its current level, with sharply higher rates doing the work for the Fed and restraining economic growth. But he said those gains have to be persistent in order to hold the Fed at bay. So let's look at what happened. Today, the yields fell sharply and meaningfully with the Treasury announcing a slightly more upbeat refunding plan for the growing U.S. debt and with the announcement from the Fed. Okay, so the Fed's statement upgraded the economy and jobs, but noted that tighter financial and credit conditions would likely weigh on the economy. The result of all this, the Fed remains on temporary hold until the economy slows and makes clear inflation continues to decline. Powell says that that was more likely, but he would not go so far as to say it was a certainty, Melissa. So we're back into this conundrum, Stephen. That is, it's dovish. The markets like it. They rally. Yields come down. Conditions are less tight. And here we go again. Now it is a Fed back in play. I mean, you know, I wonder if, if, the, if there's a line in the sand here for the Fed in terms of, you know, if markets rip in response, then they step in. 
I, I don't think that's the first order of what would bring the Fed back in, Melissa. I think the first order is the data. If this economy does not slow, and I will point out, there's only a little bit of data yet, but the Atlanta Fed GDP now was cut in half for the fourth quarter. It's only at 1.2%. I really think they want to see a number like that. I think they want to see a calmer number on Friday in the payroll report. And then most of all, they want to see inflation getting back on track to coming down. If those things come into place, then the market rally will be justified to the extent to which it's not rallying because it's afraid of the Fed. Um, I also think that uh, you want to watch the 10-year yield. And if that comes down and sort of goes back to where it was, I don't think that's going to happen. I will point out, Jeff Gunlack with Scott, Scott Wapner said, hey, maybe at least temporarily we're in the middle of a bond rally here, which is pretty interesting because uh, if, if it goes too far, it's going to be a problem. But within a certain range here, I think it's going to be still continuing to restrain the economy. Steve, Tim, uh, congrats on the market psychology or the, excuse me, the psychology and the wordsmithing I thought you did with the, the Chair Powell. I, I don't think he falls for these things. But you basically asked him, um, isn't there still a hiking bias? And he said, that's the question I'm asking, which almost meant uh, this is where you get your dovish takeaway. Uh, if not for these higher rates, um, wouldn't this have been uh, the dynamic? Um, and wouldn't you say that they would have had to have been leaning higher? Because I, I, I believe you when you were asking that question that you believe that. Yeah, so here's the thing, Tim. I think it's important to realize that um, my question was hearkening back to the old days. It shows how old I am and maybe how old you are, Tim, but you don't look it. Thank you. Um, and the deal is this, that, 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 that these are the things, Tim. Uh, Greenspan used to give us a, a bias to, 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 to policy. He says, we're here now, but our next move looks like it's likely to be this. I was trying to tease that out of Powell. That was what I was trying to figure out was, is that bias? Am I right in reading the statement as having that bias? He said, we don't do that anymore. But then he kind of conceded that, yes, there is that bias in there. And I do think that, that he said we have that bias, but he kept coming back to this idea of risks being more balanced. Remember, that was in the, in, in the SCP, the, the extra uh, hike this year. But he kind of dissed that a little bit, saying, you know what, we're going to do a new one in December. And he later said that as the SCP ages, that is the summary of economic projections, it becomes less useful or less accurate for the feelings of the committee. All right. Steve, great to get your analysis. Thank you. Steve Leisman, our senior economics reporter. Uh, Mike, I'll go to you first because the market reaction was fascinating. I mean, especially when you see, saw volatility just collapse during that Fed press conference. What was your takeaway from this? You know, I, I think Powell got a little bit lucky in the PMI data this morning, quite honestly. Had he been on the dovish side and you had a strong PMI print, I think you would have seen a very different reaction from, from rates today. You know, at the end of the day, you want the Fed to be somewhat hawkish because by being hawkish, the Fed is saying we're going to control long term growth and inflation expectations. So if you're a buyer of 10 or 20 or 30 year paper, you actually want the Fed to be to tighten monetary policy. So he got a bit lucky today in the weak economic data. What I'm fearful for is if what happens if the economy starts to reaccelerate? And we started to see that. Right. I mean, 4.9 percent GDP in Q3. And then the market says, oh, wow, you know, to Steve's point. Powell was somewhat dovish, but growth is heating up. Then you get a big bear steepening of the yield curve again. Rates go higher. That could be bad for risk. But, but Powell did see the market heating up going into this. So he already knew that. So I think this was almost Goldilocks. But this is a question for you. Has the Fed ever continued QT while they're cutting rates? Uh, they haven't. They haven't had to. No, absolutely not. And, but this time around, they said that they're going to. 
know, they're going to continue with balance sheet runoff even while cutting rates. But we also think, no, no that you know, cutting rates isn't for, for quite some time. Yeah, I thought that was an important point, and I think the bond market reacted like just another little leg uh, stronger yields lower when when he definitively took that QT, take, you know, early exit of QT off the table. That was interesting to me because I wasn't know how much was priced in there already. Maybe some, yeah. because the reaction was kind of uh, just another leg. Yeah, I mean, I think the Fed wants to really normalize the balance sheet, and I don't think this is a 2024 type story. I think this is going to be for the next 10 years. Right. You had a decade of quantitative easing and easy monetary policy, and you're probably going to have a decade of balance sheet normalization, meaning quantitative tightening. Well, and, and it's not just our Federal Reserve. It's central banks around the world. And so I'm going to say that the most important thing that happened today was not the Fed. It was the refunding announcement, and it was where they were refunding. So bill heavy, uh, note and bond lighter than expected. Still heavy because we've got a huge deficit to finance. That, that was the, the, the 20 basis point almost intraday move from the highs in the open to the lows in the 10-year and the two-year. So the entire curve felt it, even though we know that the Fed is, and the, excuse me, the government essentially is going to go out there and have to uh, finance a big budget deficit. That to me is what this is all about. And that to me is where Fed Powell is just kind of like sitting back on the sidelines. And on some level, some of this is out of the Fed's control. And on some level, it's good. But agree with Michael. I mean, we, we want this Fed to stay the course. Um, and, and the thing is, for equities right now, we're not so sure. I think equities over the last three weeks, especially with the backup in yields, was starting to wonder about that Fed put. And that's really what equities do still need to grapple with, because we want the Fed to stay the course. And, and equities still, I think, think the I'm Fed's going to give in. I'm not sure. Today, though, right? They did like it. But, but this mean, is the equities like the move in rates. So I'm not saying that the, the equities today doubted the Fed and, and, and actually or, the, or believe in the Fed to cut. Um, today was all about refunding because, I, you know, how much of the last 100 basis points was that announcement versus the last August refunding announcement? I mean, you can make an argument that a lot of this was all technical. I, I agree. It, it was all about refunding. Do we want the Fed to keep course, say course? They only control the front end anyway. What are they doing to the back end anyway? Yeah, listen, I mean, the only way they're going to control the back end is by slowing growth, right? Because the back end price is growth and inflation, to your point, Steve. But the way you control growth and inflation is by slowing. If you agree that this was supply, you have to agree, agree that it was supply or demand issue shocks to the economy, whether it was pandemic, whether it was printing all the money that they printed, monetary policy, fiscal policy are colliding. Well, I mean, I don't think anybody can say right now that monetary policy is too tight, right? We wouldn't have had 5% GDP if monetary policy was too tight. You wouldn't be printing, you know, hundreds of thousands of jobs if monetary policy was too tight. But in terms of the message, the context of this market right now for equities, Karen, yeah. is this bullish going into year end? Right, because everything math. that we've yeah. seen right. Right, keeps a lid on, on the 10-year yield, which is good for equities. Right. And we're sort of getting the all clear, at least for now, that there aren't any hikes on the table till I, I next year. I thought that too as well. So it's just math, right? If we have a lower 10-year, 20-year, whatever you want to use to do your models and discount your cash flow, it's better. I mean, we saw the higher flyers, the, you know, the IGV kind of names, the Magnificent Seven, the high, the high PEs do better for just that reason. But it just one other thing, though, about the Fed, it's, you know, he's, he's fighting this with one arm tied behind his back for, because of fiscal policy. Mm-hmm. It's Without just kind of ridiculous. He's out there on his little raft, and they're just, it's you know, raft. tsunami printing, printing. of... Uh, 
Well, you know, so, so suddenly, first of all, the reaction to today's market, there's always to me, there's this Fed cha-cha-cha, you know, from 2 o'clock or 2.20, what happens at the end of the day, it, it, you judge it by 30-minute intervals. We went up 25 handles, we went down 25 handles, we went up 40 handles on the S&P. Um, that was interesting. We're now 3.5% off the intraday lows on Friday uh, in the best month of the year for equities with maybe the Fed having at least put a lid on things or the refunding announcement having put a lid on things. That, to me, is what equities want. We're going to talk about Apple. We got, you know, we've got a big uh, kind of symbolic name and a big weighted name tomorrow um, with a lot of problems um, relative to China. But I, I do think this is very equity friendly. Our next guest says that the Treasury refunding plan has opened the floodgates to buy all assets. Let's bring in Dam Spring Advisor CEO Andy Constant. So you've been listening to our conversation where we just said this market environment now seems to be a green light for both bonds as well as equities. And that's exactly what you did, Andy, in your portfolio. When did you do that? And how long do you think does this trade last? Yeah, so Melissa, the first thing I did today was uh, look at the quarterly refunding announcement at 8.30 and found that the uh, bonds issuance for today, for this quarter, was being kept the same. And it's all about bonds, long-duration assets that the private sector has to buy. But mark, importantly, next quarter, uh, they're only increasing the bond supply by $10 billion. Uh, three months ago when you had me on, they increased bond supply for this quarter by $160 billion, and that caused the S&P to fall 8%. 10-year yields rise 100 basis points. And so today, this the supply is still heavy, but the rate of change has gone from $160 billion to only $10 billion. And asset prices have cheapened dramatically. And so given that combination of less there's still plenty of supply, but less supply um, and very cheap asset prices. Uh, I think assets are cheap now and assets can rally and maybe a false dawn through year end. But, um, you know, that's sort of what I the way I put together the supply issue. So in terms so your long stocks in terms of being long bonds, is it time to go long duration at this point? Or do you see value? Do you see, you know, a move higher in all parts of the curve? Yeah. So um, actually, the thing I find most interesting is the rally in the two year. That's the one that didn't make sense to me. But in terms of long duration, I was short 30 year bonds. I covered them right on the open. And then they've rallied 16, 15 basis points or so. Um, And I think they have another 15 to 20 basis points to go. So I do think the 30-year is interesting. The two-year rallying doesn't make a lot of sense to me for many of the reasons you all mentioned, which is if if bonds and stock, long-term bonds and stocks both rally, the Fed's going to have to hike more, and that's going to hit the two-year. So I think the two-year rallying is the most odd bit of this uh, of this day today. Powell was hawkish. The QRA relieved some of the pressure on on long-term assets, and yet the two-year rallied such that there's about 95 basis points of cuts priced into 2024, and the Fed only expects 50. Why did you think Powell was hawkish? We just had Steve Leisman on who, you know, endured the whole press conference live and in person, and he walked away with a, a dovish message. Yeah, I mean, I think it basically... The bottom line is I think he was right down the middle of exactly where he has normally been, which is focusing on inflation, not 
um, convincing the market that there could be one more hike, but we're going to pause for a long time. And I didn't get anything new. Um, you know, Steve's the expert, so I defer to him. Andy, it's Karen. Thanks for being on today. Uh, nice job getting out in the morning of your shorts. What do you think is more attractive now, you know, the equity markets or the bond markets? Well, I think they both can rally 2 to 3%, maybe from here, maybe to 4,400 on the S&P, so maybe you get 4%. Um, but, you know, we still have the same problems in that we do have $720 billion of quantitative tightening to deal with each year. We do have it's likely that the uh, the Treasury is going to have to increase issuance again. So I don't think we're going to run away on the upside. Um, and, you know, there's lots of problems. But at the same time, uh, at this stage, the uh, duration overhang has been lifted. And that should lift assets, you know, call it 3 to 5%. Andy, great to see you. Thank you. Sure. Andy Constant, Damp Spring. You agree, Michael? I, mean, I agree with some of what Andy had to say. I think there's a couple things I would note. One is on the equity side. You know, I think what today did is it just removes an overhang and allows the market to start focusing on earnings. Right? We are in the middle of Q3 earnings season here, and you know, I think that's going to be the more important driver now. The second thing I just wanted to say with regards to Andy is, listen, we've been in an upward trend on yields, not just since the Treasury announced larger issuance. We've been in an upper trend well before that, dating back to July. What else happened in July? Well, the Fed cut back on the pace of their hikes. They skipped meetings, just as when economic growth and inflation started to bubble up again. So there's certainly a component of this move higher in yields that have been more technical related, whether it be Japanese yield curve control expectations or refunding, you know, bill issuance, et cetera. But there's also a big part that's, quite frankly, economic growth. It sounds like people got two, two negative on equities, two negative on bonds. And now with the issuance coming maybe back in line or backing off to what we thought it was going to be, and you have a seasonality bullish time of year, you probably have a, I, I, I was about to say all clear, and then you're going to come down to me and then ask him <laughs> if, if the market is all clear. I think you have an all clear towards year end. Tim, do you think Steve's yes. all clear is accurate? There you well, go. Mel, um, <laughs> I, I, think, I think the dollar is another ingredient here. And again, it's again, it's a perception. The dollar will sniff out whether the Fed was or was not today. Um, when you have the BOJ dynamics and you have what's going on, I think the dollar's going to help. All right, coming up, a wage wipeout in the payroll sector. Shares of Paycom posting their worst day on record and bringing the whole space to look down along with it. What the week outlook could mean ahead of Friday's big jobs report. But first, after hours action in SolarEdge and Qualcomm, Solar Edge tumbling, Qualcomm jumping. The numbers from those quarters next don't go anywhere. More Fast Money in two. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. 
Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's a big night of earnings movers. Check out just some of the stocks making monster moves after the bell. We're going to get into all these names, but we start off with SolarEdge. Shares getting slammed after the company missed in the top and the bottom lines, posted very weak Q4 guidance. Let's get to Pippa Stevens, who's got more. Pippa. Hey, Melissa. Well, shares are dropping 23% after the company disappointed against already lowered expectations. Less than two weeks ago, they released preliminary results pointing to a slowdown, and they still disappointed. The call kicking off a bit ago and the CEO addressing it right off the top, saying they are going through, quote, challenging times in terms of general market dynamics and specific inventory trends related to their products. Now, Europe especially is an issue. Last year, demand skyrocketed on the back of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And as the company said, they thought that demand would continue in 2023, but it hasn't, which means distributors are working through excess inventory and not buying as much. And there's no clear turnaround in sight. And for the current quarter, SolarEdge expects its gross margin to be between 5 and 8 percent. That's down from more than 30 percent just two quarters ago. Melissa? Pippa, thanks. Pippa Stevens. This, I mean, I don't know what even to say about this. If they warned, and they moved a lot on the back of that warning yeah. two weeks ago, and right. here they are yet again. That, 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 I don't know what's wrong there, because if you make an announcement like they pre-announced less than two weeks, maybe two weeks ago, put everything in there, the entire kitchen sink, anything you can find, put <laughs> it in there and do it once, because then you have some, some credibility left. And unfortunately, when this happens now, or things are deteriorating so rapidly that they couldn't even see that coming. Neither of those two are good. No, but each each bit of news from each company takes the next one down. And, and you know, end phase. And we've heard all about what's been going on in Europe. And, and now even those manufacturers of U.S. modules are coming under pressure. So um, I, I don't you know what's interesting is the analyst community hasn't even been able to catch their breath on this. I mean, you, you've been seeing these gap down uh, reassessments and EPS downgrades. And I think there's I think there's more coming. I, at some point, solar over, always overshoots. Um, right. The problem is that you're going to need some both some secular and some macro changes to get people excited again. There's a little bit of differentiation. We, we had first solar out, which is much more the utility side of the business. Their numbers they did are okay. okay. Yep. They did okay uh, during the session. But we have Sunrun coming out after hours, which is the residential side of the business, and they're down 5%. Yeah, this this group, to Tim's point about analysts, it's very hard to predict when you have they're reliant on subsidies at this point, still in in the phase that all these companies are. So you can't you can't look and project out models when you're basing it on government funding and subsidies. There's too many variables impossible. When you look at the stock down 73 percent year to date. It's impossible to see where the next catalyst is going to come from, and it's impossible to see what the next political party is going to give in subsidies. We're in an election year cycle. There's too many moving parts for me to take a bet here. All right, let's move on to Qualcomm here, the chip company uh, beating on the top and the bottom lines, issuing strong first quarter outlook. Let's get to Christina Partsnevelis for more on this. Christina. This uh, strong outlook uh, and beat coming despite a global slowdown in smartphone shipments in Q3. You had management saying on the earnings call right now they are seeing, quote, early signs of stabilization and demand for global 3G, 4G and 5G smartphones, with strength actually coming from greater China as well, which you know could bode well for Apple's earnings. Uh, keep in mind, in early September, 
Qualcomm did announce that they would continue to supply Apple with phone chips for the next three years. That Apple deal helping their handset revenue beat and is also pretty much a testament to Qualcomm's chips. Even Apple can't recreate them. Uh, if we're speaking about auto, the auto segment actually beat despite weakness from other chip makers like on semi and lattice semiconductors and also contributed more to total revenue, so it's growing. Qualcomm recently announced an X-Elite PC chip based on ARM technology. CEO Amon saying on the call that their CPU chip exceeds the performance of x86 chips, which is really just an instruction set used by AMD and Intel, so that means that maybe they could steal market share. This new CPU chip, though, is only going to be available in mid-2024, but has a lot of support from Microsoft. Qualcomm shares up uh, about 3% higher now. Yes. All right, Christina. Thank you, Christina Partsnevelis. Um, Tim, good news for, for smartphones? It's it's okay news for smartphones. It may be okay news for Qualcomm. I mean, this is a case where again the the exposure they have to Samsung, they're going to be a primary customer on on the Galaxy um, S24. They also point out here. I'm just reading. Uh, they expect that Huawei's re-entry into the smartphone market is going to. It's not really going to in, impact their relationship with other players, and that's good because I think there's some sense that Huawei is going to be a thorny kind of a relationship for for suppliers. We've talked about this. This is their ability to kind of sidestep. A lot of the U.S. sanctions. Um, Chinese OEMs are uh, growing about 35 percent in terms of their sequential growth, and that's good news. It almost seems like they're coming back to life a little bit. How much of an indicator are semiconductors for you? It, you know, they're a pretty good indicator. I mean, it's a, um, you know, a big cyclical area of the economy, and, you know, we have to focus on that around this time of year is make see what's going on with cyclicality, what's going on with economic growth and likely earnings growth. So, we, we definitely look at semis and sort of the whole sector in its whole to get that sort of indication. This is not the sexy part of the semiconductor market. NVIDIA is up 190%. AMD is up 66%. You have that AI chip, uh, probably the tailwind there. You don't have that with Qualcomm. Qualcomm is a better read on the economy or smartphones directly, but it's not a better read on semiconductors. Right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Payday is usually a happy time, but not for these stocks. The huge drop in one payroll name and the waves it's sending throughout the space. All ahead of a key jobs report on Friday. Plus, concerning China. Companies raising the red flag and pointing to rough times ahead as China's rebound falters. But someone on the desk says now might be the time to buy. They lay out their case after this. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. A few more earnings movers we want to bring to your attention. Shares of Clorox cleaning up, posting a strong mm-hmm. revenue beat. The company also <laughs> noting in August, an August cyber attack caused wide-scale disruptions that are impacting our short-term financial performance. Meantime, Mondelez is also moving higher here on a top and bottom line beat. The snack company also raising their full-year organic revenue guidance. And uh, 
when I saw this, Karen, about Mondelez, I was thinking of you. Yes, and just Kelanova. in that space. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, it was up a little bit today. I mean, in a big rally, like, you know, where multiple high multiples are good, it's going to lag a little bit, but um, ridiculously cheap. Well, I'd also just say that, that a lot of the staple stocks were suffering as rates were going higher because they are seen right. as yield plays and they are seen as at least correlated to slower growth, higher rates. And so this today in the bond market helped them. All right, let's get to Paycom shares now. Getting a big pay cut, the payroll stock having its worst day ever, plummeting more than 38 percent after reporting a miss on revenue, issuing a weak sales outlook for next year. The drop pulling other payroll related stocks down along with it. All these moves coming ahead of Friday's big jobs reports. Uh, Michael, what are you expecting here? Is this going to be a big tell here? Are we still, are we going to start seeing weakness? Listen, I think at some point you have to start seeing weakness. So I would—I don't know if it's going to be this month or you know next month or into 2024. But certainly, I think you're seeing labor starting to weaken, right? I mean, we're absolutely seeing that in a lot of the surveys. You see it. Well, you don't see it so much in the uh, the, the jobless claims data, but you do see it uh, in a lot of the survey data that's out there: small business hiring, et cetera, hours worked. Um, so I think warn notices skyrocketed. That tends to be an early warning signal to employment. So listen, I do think you'll see weakness in the labor market, whether or not it's this Friday or next week, next month or the following. I'm not sure. But, you know, this is clearly a, a little bit of a red herring. Yeah. I mean, these talks are telegraphing at least concerns that the softening is coming and that will result in lower revenues or billings for these particular companies. Ceridian, Workday, Paychecks, ADP. These are all weak on the back of Paycom. And remember last week, Corn Ferry announced layoffs. Um, so this whole sector is, is seeing some sort of pullback. Of it is. Um, I think some of this is also just tied to the ancillary businesses a lot of these companies have as they get into consumer finance or they're in some sense, you know, either you know, p- having people lend against some of these dynamics. I think there's a big dynamic there. Um, I, I, I agree. We're probably at peak labor. Um, but it's fascinating because if you look at the last three payroll numbers, we've got payroll on Friday, they've averaged about 270,000 jobs at it um, for an economy that people thought was going to probably be subtracting jobs. And if you didn't have an increase in the participation rate, we would actually be at record unemployment right now. So a couple of things. The macroeconomy has been negative. We have geopolitical. It's been negative. So people pull back on their budgeting. So I think that was an overlay why people were starting to pull back. Also, I think I read a line in Paycom that they were focused on smaller businesses. Those smaller businesses are more likely to have issues as rate rates rise. So it's not, I don't think it should be a blanket testimony on all of the space. I, I think that's a really good point. You know, I, I think uh, the business mix is important. And I also think that as profits do accelerate, you know, you can see uh, hiring potentially, you know, level out, maybe at a lower level, though. Coming up, China concerns weighing on earnings, a number of companies flagging issues as the country's rebound starts to slip, but could now be the time to buy the weakness. We'll dig into that trade next. And we're watching more after hours action shares of Zillow on the move after reporting the numbers from that quarter when Fast Money returns. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. We're back right after this.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks closing just off their highs of the day after the Fed held rates steady for a second meeting in a row. The Dow rising more than 200 points for its highest close in nearly two weeks. The S&P up over a percent, nearly breaking back above its 200-day moving average. The Nasdaq leading the gains up for a fourth day in a row. Shares of CVS closing well off their lows of the day after its earnings report this morning. The company beat estimates for the quarter, but posted higher medical costs at its insurance unit, higher than expected. The stock was down nearly 7% earlier, earlier in the day. And a couple more after-hours movers. Airbnb down despite a revenue beat. The travel company giving weaker-than-expected guidance. Etsy also lower after a revenue miss. On the other hand, DoorDash jumping the company, beating on the top and the bottom lines and giving strong guidance. Elf and EA also higher after beating expectations. Uh, Karen? CVS. Mm-hmm. CVS, yes. One I don't own anymore, but I definitely watch. Um, the medical cost ratio, which is how much of each dollar of medical premiums they have to spend to uh, pay medical costs, that, that's not a good thing. So that was a, that was a beat to the wrong way. Um, also, you know, there's just been so much pressure. If you look at Walgreens, on there's, there's fears about the CVS stores, the, you know, the consumer part of the business. So it is cheap for sure, but you had a lot of business cobbled together. Um, it just, I kind of just gave up. Right. Meantime, Estee Lauder, Yum China, and Canada Goose, the latest companies to call out China's lackluster economic recovery in their Q3 earnings calls, all three pointing out soft consumer demand that continues to weigh on sales abroad. Those stocks dropping sharply in today's session, with Estee Lauder notching its worst day on record. With Apple set to post results after the bell tomorrow, Wall Street's bracing for the impact of softer sales in China on the tech giant's bottom line. Still, our next guest says China's weaker economic picture could be the new norm. Leland Miller, CEO of China Beige Book. Leland, great to have you with us. Um, how, how bad do you think it gets? Do you think it sort of just muddles along the Chinese economy? I think you you said it right. This is the new norm. Uh, The mistake that a lot of investors are making right now is thinking, well, you know, we've had some bad times, but this will bottom. Things will go back up again. There is no way Xi Jinping will allow the economy to cruise at such low levels. You know, we've we learned over the years that, you know, the Chinese Communist Party loves high levels of growth and they love stimulus. So we just have to wait this out. All of that is wrong. Uh, right now, we're in a new paradigm in terms of Chinese economic growth. It's a structural slowdown. You are going to see cyclical ups and downs. But right now, we're in a period where everything is it's looking pretty bad. You've got real tough times in property, consumer spending slowing down, and uh, conditions got worse from September to October. So uh, there's a lot of pressure on the economy right now. Why is there no pressure on, on President Xi? Why is there no pressure on the Communist Party to help things along? Why are they so willing to um, have crackdowns on not only foreign corporations, but also domestic corporations to the detriment of their own markets? Well, you know, years ago, the idea used to be that there was a social compact between, you know, the party and the people. And the party said, we will give you high levels of growth and we will make you rich. And in return, you support us. Uh, Those days are over. You know, the new social compact is we will deliver slower, healthier growth. We will distribute the, the, you know, the riches, uh, the wealth more, uh, more broadly. Uh, You know, we, we, we can't continue to run the other model down because there's too much bad debt in the system. There's too much friction. And we need to be focusing on what's really important, which is national security, which is making sure the you know, economy is more robust and protected against uh, uh, problems abroad. So, you know, the, the mindset of the party's change has been an acceptance of a lower growth model. And as a result, the, the party's just not worried about high levels of growth. They're not worried about stimulating uh, periods of weakness. It's just not the priority anymore. 
So, Leland, it's Tim. What does this then mean for the capex and the spend and the growth uh, that's being sunk into China or has been sunk by U.S. firms, a Starbucks, uh, a Ralph Lauren? We talk about Apple all the time, but there, you know, this was the story for anyone with a brand going to that part of the world. Are you seeing that pullback now? Well, a lot of firms are, quite frankly, stuck because for years and years and years, the idea has been we just have to keep sinking money into the economy and eventually you're going to hit critical mass and then then you'll be able to to both do well and get your money out. I think there's a problem with that right now. So firms, firms are some firms are, are, are leaving. Some firms are decoupling their supply chains. Others are doubling down in terms of their operations in China. I think there's a lot of different strategies out there. But what it does mean is there is more pressure on foreign firms right now than there has ever been before. And the trend is getting worse now better. So if you're there, you better know what you're doing. Um, in, in terms of the next sort of catalyst for U.S.-China relations, what are you looking toward? Um, President Xi and President Biden are supposed to have some talks. Yeah, and look, the talks are good in that they set some sort of floor on the relationship, so hopefully it doesn't collapse. Uh, but look, we're, we're on the cusp of 2024, and 2024 is going to be a tough year. You've got the Taiwan presidential election at the beginning of the year. You've got the U.S. presidential election at the end of the year. None of this is going to be particularly good for U.S.-China relations. You have a global economic slowdown. Uh, you have a lot of other issues with, with the, the China's domestic economy. There's just a lot of pressure on, 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 Ch- on China's economy right now. And so the idea is, you know, hopefully things don't get worse, but the pressures in the relationship are building. They're, they're you know, despite talks, they're, they're not being eased. Leland, thank you. Good to see you. Pleasure. All right. After all that, I mean, it sounds like a terrible picture that Leland is painting of China. And yet, Michael, you say buy China. Mm-hmm. Why? I, I do say buy China. I mean, we don't buy unemployment. We don't buy, you know, political relations with Taiwan or Russia. Um, we buy stocks. That's what we do. And earnings growth in China is actually accelerating and it's going positive. There are very few markets in the world, even in the US, if you look at earnings growth, it's still negative. In China, earnings growth is accelerating and positive. Uh, on top of that, right, the PBOC is likely to add liquidity to the system. Um, you know, we'll see how much liquidity, but they're going to add liquidity to the system. And valuations are incredibly attractive. I mean, this is the second cheapest market in the world, but, but and everybody hates at, it. When you look at a JD, when you look at a Baidu, bolt down in the last three months, over 30%. When you look at a Alibaba, down 70%. I agree if you're, if you're bottom fishing or looking for, for valuation because it is the cheapest. I wonder if you can make the correlation between when they're weak financially or economically, they're loud geopolitically. Because that seems to be the case to me, what I'm, what I'm hearing out of China, at least where Taiwan is concerned, that's the biggest threat nationally. I, I, I tell you what, I, 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 first of all, I, I admire the call. I actually think that China's growth is going to be higher than expected in the second half. I, I, I like exposure to Macau. I know what's going on. I know what's going on with GDR, especially in the better, uh, in the better segments. As someone that's been investing in emerging markets a lot of my career, I always say, though, you can't invest in a bad neighborhood. And it doesn't really matter if you're picking out great stocks, because I think more than 60 percent of your profile is coming from kind of that top down or the currency. Now, I want to believe in your call. And I think the sentiment on China is as low as we have ever seen. And at times on the show, we've actually even said China is uninvestable. And then we've seen a rally. So anyway, I'm just curious. Um, Cheap versus the macro, which is more compelling? And and can I add to this? Sure. RBA has been positive on China for the entire year, right? We have been. Yeah, yeah we have been. So, you know, we were probably early mm-hmm. to China. So we'll certainly acknowledge that. 
Um, you know, the recovery post-COVID when they reopened the economy was not as strong as it was in the U.S. I think that took us a little bit by surprise. With that said, I mean, listen, economic growth in China is not that bad. I think it's, you know, we just got huge applause in the U.S. for growing at 4.9% in Q3. Guess what China's growth is right now? Roughly about the same. Who says? <laughs> no, me, I think it's higher than that. Let me ask you something, though. Are you saying China equities? Or are you saying companies that have a lot of exposure to China? China equities. Chinese China equities. equities. Okay. Yeah, Chinese equities. Okay. Yeah. And the profit growth is there. Remember, and I think that's what we go back to. China reminds me very much to the United States in 2009. What was the narrative around the United States in 2009? That it was uninvestable. S&P hit 666. The Fed was pumping, liquidity, uh, pumping the system full of liquidity, just like the PBOC will be doing, and earnings growth started to accelerate. It's a very similar story. Coming up, Stranger Things are not happening for Netflix. The streamer out with a big blockbuster number today that sent Wall Street cheering. Got the details ahead, but first, Zillow on the move will unpack their earnings report next. Stick around much more fast in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Zillow, the real estate stock taking a leg up in just the last few minutes. The company posting a top and bottom line beat, Zillow lowering its revenue guidance for Q4 as mortgage rates remain high. The company also saying in a letter to shareholders, it believes the $1.8 billion lawsuit involving the National Association of Realtors making headlines yesterday will likely be tied up in court for years, so maybe no impact yet for Zillow. What do you think? Well, they also point out, they, Zillow is not a party to this in any way. Right. Nor any of the other suits. Sure. The question is, is there going to be pressure on brokers? And, to not advertise. And and, not. And, well, to, that's, their, that's their customer, right? So is their customer pressured? Um, but um, so the quarter was good, just the guidance was a little light. The bigger problem, the far bigger problem, I think, is that because we're in this sort of stalemate of, you know, not There's a lot of velocity sales. of sales. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, the more velocity of sales, the better for them. What they have done, which is good, is they've accelerated in the rental space a lot. That's been good, but it, it pales in comparison to the rest of their business. So that's what's really weighing on Zillow. I like it. I love this asset light model. They made that disastrous foray in and out of buying homes. Um, I like it, but it's been, it's been tough sledding. It will be for a little while. Do you think housing will remain durable, the market? You know, I think it can hold up better than people expect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a, obviously a shortage of housings uh, throughout the country. Uh, supply and demand favors the asset class, and everybody's locked in low rates. And so no one's really moving, which just furthers that supply and demand uh, dynamic. So I think housing can stay stronger than, than you know, stronger for longer. Paul McCulley on, uh, today on CNBC said basically low mortgage rates, it creates like you know, rent control, rent stabilized apartments all over the country because people are, have locked in such low rates that their cost to live is low. So in New York City, rent stabilized, rents are, are kept lower. So their house, housing costs to the consumer remain low. For now. I thought it was in it for now. Right, for now. Yeah, and maybe yeah. for a long time, depending on how long these rates are locked in for. You saw, you saw mortgage rates double, and you haven't seen any real impact to the price of homes. In, in theory, the price of a home should have been cut in half. Obviously, the world doesn't work that way. But I, I think mortgage rates have to substantially become lower than where they are now, maybe five, five and a half. And I don't think anyone on this table has any clue where, how quick that's going to happen. But I think the whole segment is going to be challenged until mortgage rates fall substantively. I, 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 well, I agree that 
housing prices, I just think that they have to come down. And I realize that that's not a consensus view right now. I just look at the things that drove housing higher and think about COVID. Think about the dynamics there. I realize there are bigger picture things like baby boomers and demographics and they're buying that second home. But the reality is the housing market was goosed by a combo of COVID and then also interest rates. Right. At one point, what were we at? 56 on the 10-year? Uh, BIPs, that is. Right. And so mortgage rates for people that were getting in there around two and a half. Um, houses aren't worth as much in this environment. Coming up, a blockbuster day for Netflix. The entertainment giant tripling its ad-supported tier users. We'll dive into the numbers, what they mean for the future of streaming. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Roku ripping higher after hours following a big revenue beat, upbeat fourth quarter guidance. The stock still down nearly 80 percent over the last two years. Sticking with streaming, Netflix rolling out the red carpet for a blockbuster number today. Its ad-supported tier now has 15 million global active users, triple what it reported in May. Netflix saying will roll out new features for advertisers and users over the coming months, including higher quality streaming in different ad formats. Uh, You know, it's interesting. The stock moved. It didn't move as much necessarily as some of its, you know, mega cap peers. Right. Uh, But it it was positive news. It was positive for sure, especially since about six weeks ago or maybe it was a little longer ago that executive at Netflix had said we're having trouble. The Mm -hmm. ad ad supported tier is harder than we thought. They had an executive change. This seems like a pretty quick turnaround from that. Um, Maybe it's just proving Netflix is they're, they're never great at at sort of estimating where they're going to be sure. with that that subscriber beat was huge. Along Netflix, I, it is not cheap. It deserves a premium. The question is exactly how much premium. I don't know, but I'm staying long. I'm not long Netflix. I hope to get it lower. Uh, have been long. And, and I think the fact of the 100 million uh, borrowers out there that are being converted and they're doing this with the ad supported where we're now seeing everyone else in streaming coming on board with that model. So once again, Netflix ahead of everybody else. And, and this is so accretive to, to earnings and, and back to free cash flow. There's no one even close to them. I mean, no one's no one's got free cash flow. It's a cash burn on streaming. Uh, they'll have six to six to eight billion in free cash flow. This is a, uh, a story I want to buy lower. I think I think I Will. Is this good news or bad news for the other streamers with ad-supported tiers? Uh, I think it's bad news. I, I think, to Tim's point, it's Netflix and everybody else, and everybody else doesn't seem to have the ability to make any money. The tailwinds for Net- Netflix were the ad tier, the password sharing, the writer strike, in my opinion. Those were all tailwinds. Now we've come to the end of a lot of those. The ad, the, uh, ad income is obviously still elongated for me. It was an obvious short when it was at 450. I was wrong. I didn't think it would pop this much. So I think that you're better off being a seller versus a buyer at these levels. Up next, final trades. Final trades, Michael Kantopoulos. I like two and a half percent real yields. I'm going with tips. Tim. Japanese stocks ripping. M-U-F-G Bank. Karen. Yes, Morgan Stanley. M&A will come back. Steve. W-R-K. Huge upside. Thanks for watching Fast. See you tomorrow. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.
All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.